Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals, including today's incredibly special guest, Sean Williams. Hey, Sean. Hey, John. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm right. doing great, even with uh, everything that's going on right now with our current uh, COVID pandemic that's happening here. So um, how about down there in Australia? Ah, uh, yeah, the same. We're, we're managing. We're working from home. We're uh, living in beautiful social isolation. It's, uh, <laughs> I quite like it, actually. <laughs> Except that I can't come visit you guys this year. What a shame. I know. Well, we're moving it now to, to August, the end of August, for our event. So we can, ah, we can revisit right. that. Yeah. Yeah, we had we had well, to delay it. Yeah, for the time being, everything yeah. on this release is online. So, um, yeah. as a brief overview, so I can have the uh, everybody listening to this. Uh, Sean was a winner in 1993, Volume Nine of Writers of the Future, with his story "Ghosts of the Fall." He has since gone on to publish 39 novels, 80 plus short stories. He's won three Aurealis Awards. In 2010, he became a doctor. And so, Doctor Who, move over. We got Doctor Sean, and um, <laughs> we've got. You know, it's interesting when we have people here at the office who um, who like your. We really like your your YI stuff. I love your Troublemaker series, and I know some of our salespeople love the Twin Maker series. And we we talk about mm. no, no, I like this one better. No, I like that one better. <laughs> and cheers, um, that's good to know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we you definitely have very very. Um, strong fans over here at Writers of the Future here in Los Angeles. So, Sean, the, since the purpose of Writers of the Future is to uh, provide that inspiration and just, like, keep on going, guys, keep on going, how did you find out about it? Because you were earlier on, now that we're in Volume 36, um, and you were mm. Volume 9, how did your process go of entering the contest, how many times, and then uh, well, what happened after yeah. that? Yeah. Well, my sister was the one who alerted me to the existence of the contest. I, uh, I, I dropped out of university to become a, a writer at the end of 89. Oh, gee, that seems like a long time ago now. <laughs> Makes me feel old. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So the contest was in existence back then, but was back in single digits. And uh, I uh, was writing lots of short stories and didn't really know what to do with them. And my sister rang me up and said, you know, there's this great competition. Look at the prizes. Look at, you could win a trip to the States. You could, you know, win money in publication. You should enter this. And I, I decided that I would start entering every quarter. I made a sort of pact with myself that I'd put a story in every quarter with the hope of, you know, winning one day. And uh, I set off my first one and it, I didn't win anything, set off my second one. It didn't win anything. Uh, but I kept on going, kept, kept with it, uh, wrote a new story every quarter at least. Uh, and I think on about the seventh or eighth one, I think I um, was an honourable mention, which was a huge, uh, huge excitement. Uh, and by then I'd started publishing stories. I'd, I'd worked up the courage to start submitting them to magazines and had a few published. And, and I, I was getting really close to no longer being eligible. And I think it was my 10th story. It was the last one I could enter. After that point, I would not be eligible to enter the competition anymore. But I submitted the story, crossed my fingers, and uh, I got a call from the wonderful Rachel, who was in charge of the, the contest back then, uh, all the way from America, saying that I'd won third prize in that quarter. And I remember doing a, a very excited happy dance uh, <laughs> in, my, in my little bed sit. <laughs> I was so excited. Because uh, I live in Adelaide, South Australia, the other side of the world. Um, 
in the middle of nowhere, like like Luke Skywalker living on Tatooine. You know, if there's a if there's a part of the the planet farthest from the publishing centres of you know the Earth that Adelaide's it, and uh, I felt like it was going to be really difficult to to get anywhere. So uh, winning a prize in the competition was a huge. Uh, excitement, a huge boon. The event itself was extraordinary. Uh, yeah. Meeting so many other writers uh, who were all in the same boat as us. You know, meeting people like uh, Tim Powers and Kevin J. Anderson. Not to mention all you guys. You know, yeah. it was an incredible encouragement. Uh, and then coming back to Australia and doing a whole heap of publicity, and and things really took off from there. You know, I I started selling in better magazines. I sold, started selling novels. Um, it was really the beginning of my professional career. Uh, in lots and lots of ways, I got to join SFWA after that point. Uh, it was uh, just a huge injection of inspiration and and professionalism as well. You know, meeting yeah. real published writers, meeting meeting uh, Larry Niven, and meeting oh, you these heroes that I'd had all my life. Suddenly, they were in my orbit. It was incredibly validating. Oh, that's great! I know. At one point, you got connected up with uh, Star Wars. How did that happen? I did. Ah, so, so Writers of the Future was being in an elevator with a bunch of new writers and everybody was saying, oh, Richard Curtis, he's like the best agent. I really want to be with him. He's such a god. He's so fantastic. And I eventually ended up with Richard Curtis. Uh, I, I dropped him a line out of nowhere because of all this buzz I'd been hearing from Writers of the Future. And he took me on and... and one day I happened to say, you know, I'd really like to write a Star Wars novel. And he went, oh, noted. I'll see if I can get you a deal. And and I, I got really excited for a little while, but um, these the wheels of publishing take a long time to turn. And yeah. it was a couple of years later that uh, rang me up at three in the morning and uh, said, you know how you wanted to write a Star Wars novel? I should mention this was the first time we'd ever spoken. All our business was based entirely via email because he's in New York and I'm in Adelaide, the back end of the world. Uh, he <laughs> rings me up at three in the morning and says, uh, you know, we've never spoken before, but this is Richard. Uh, get up, splash some water on your face and call me straight back. So I did. And he said, well, you know, you wanted the Star Wars novel. I've got you three. And again, I did a real happy dance and, and uh, he said, you know, email this person, whatever they say to you, say yes, you'll do it and uh, <laughs> call me back. So I, so I emailed all these people and said yes, including agreeing to go to Skywalker Ranch. So by, you know, within three or four hours, I had flights booked to go to Skywalker Ranch two weeks later and uh, to meet up with Shelley Shapiro, Shelley Shapiro, yeah. the editor of the Deal Ray line, the wonderful Shelley Shapiro, to discuss what these books would be. And, uh, and that was a, another sort of an incredible launch, uh, a, a sort of projection of my career into this uh, amazing realm that I'd always wanted to be in. It enabled me to go become a full-time writer, which I'd always dreamed of being. So I, I managed to quit all my part-time jobs and uh, and become nothing but a professional writer, which I which I then did for another twenty years. Fantastic experience. Yeah, yeah, it is. Now you've written a lot of stuff with a writing partner. In fact, one of the essays in volume 36, Writers of the Future, just um, now now releasing, talks about uh, writing with a partner. <laughs> That's right. And Garth Nix, most recently, is my one of my collaborators. Yeah, or Garth Nix and Shane Dix. It was a running joke for a while that I could only collaborate with people whose names ended in X. But uh, it started <laughs> because I've always been interested in collaboration, I, partly because... Back in the days when I was writing short stories, I, I wasn't getting out of the house very much. And collaboration was a way to kind of engage with 
other people, <laughs> which is yeah. a very healthy thing to do. And uh, Shane and I were actually approached by a small press publisher to see if we would like to write a, a book together in a shared new shared universe. Uh, and we decided that we would do it, that uh, you don't turn down offers from editors lightly. So we decided we would say yes, but then we had to very quickly work out how to how to write this novel together. So I just joined the SFWA, Sifwa, and in that book, in the Sifwa handbook was an essay by Larry Niven on how to collaborate. And I thought, well, I'd better read this. Larry Niven, one of my heroes and a, a very famous collaborator. And he had some a list of 12 or 13 guidelines for how to collaborate. And I thought that's exactly what I need. And two of them in particular have stuck with me all these years. And uh, and Shane and I, we had a very successful collaborative relationship in, in part, in a large part, to Larry's wisdom. We wrote um, 13 novels together, I think, in the end, several of which won awards and several of which were New York Times bestsellers and Star Wars novels and all sorts of things. And I've never, I've never lost the bug. I've, I've always enjoyed collaborating. When Shane and I decided, decided to go our separate ways, um, I wrote with a couple of other people, wrote some short stories. Uh, then Garth and I, we've been friends for oh over 20 years now. We'd always been talking about collaborating. Eventually, we came up with the right idea and started writing together. Um, we've had New York Times bestsellers as well. And it's just uh, something I incredibly enjoy. So writing the essay for uh, Writers of the Future, volume 36, was a great opportunity for me to kind of revisit Larry's advice and see uh, what I could add to it or how I would rewrite it. So in a sense, it's uh, I think of it as kind of a collaboration with Larry, even though <laughs> Larry <laughs> didn't know that I was doing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he might not be so happy. That <laughs> kind of breaks one of the rules of collaboration. But uh, <laughs> but I think it's a response to, which is sort of a collaboration. And that's one of the great things about science fiction. We're always in conversation with the, the previous books and the previous writers. And this is kind of a conversation with Larry about uh, about collaborating. It's one that I'd like to have in real life one day. If I can pin him down at the next event, well, <laughs> he'll definitely yeah, not look not suspecting. <laughs> <laughs> well, he'll definitely be here at the next one, so um, we will hopefully be able to yeah. arrange that in August for you to be able to make it out there. But anyway, that would be great. That would definitely be great. So now, as far mm. as like, what's your writing? Re First of all, are you still writing? Because I know you you be in 2010 you became a, a doctor and moved more into teaching. Is that how that went? Because I know you've that, gone into well, heavily I, in teaching. Yeah, that's right. I got my doctorate uh, a little while back, and I didn't move straight into teaching, but it, I, it was a possibility. That was one of the reasons why I got my doctorate was because I thought if I ever want to teach, I'll need that. But I also wanted the challenge, and I wanted to try some different things, and uh, you know, and that was a good way to do all that. All that, and just just recently, um, last year, a friend of mine who teaches at Flinders University here in South Australia. She was on maternity leave and she rang me up and said, I really want you to take my classes. I think I want to leave my students in safe hands and I think they'll like you. And more importantly, I think you'll like them and you'll like the environment. And I, when I when I got that Star Wars deal years ago, I, I swore I'd never have a real job again. Uh, I'm going to be a writer <laughs> for the rest of my life. So I said to I said to Lisa, I've sworn I'm never going to rule job again. I'm never going to do this. And she said, no, just think about it. I, you know, I'm not going to have the baby tomorrow. We've got time to time to make this happen. So I did think about it and I thought, well, why not? You know, I, I took the PhD for the challenge and the change. Why not 
do this. It's only half time. It's going to introduce me to lots of new writers, uh, which is something I've always loved uh, doing. Right. So I said yes to it. And almost immediately I realized how much I liked it and how much I could like it. So when the possibility of having a full-time job came up, I took that. So and I started that at the beginning of this year. So I've been a, a full-time senior lecturer in in creative writing at Flinders University all this year, which means that I have left less time to write. But it so I'm still writing. I'm just writing less. I'm doing a lot more teaching than I used to. But I am still writing and I'm trying all sorts of other things that uh, I wouldn't normally have the time or the encouragement to do. So writing more nonfiction pieces, uh, writing more experimental pieces. Uh, I've got to write a novel this year, so that will be something that I'll be focusing on uh, shortly. It's a good time of the year to be uh, locked in a house working on something creative. So Indeed it is. Indeed it is. It's something that yeah. writers can probably best take the advantage of or creative people. <laughs> Definitely. That's right. We don't need any equipment. We just need a computer and we can hammer away. Fantastic. Exactly. So how? what's your like, writing regimen that you've got right now when you have a, well, I don't know, are you full-time job still right now? Or are you doing online? Are you doing like zoom teaching classes or are you just now done with that until it's it passes no we're, we're still teaching everything's gone online and uh, flinders university was one of the first to go online we we could see where it was headed and uh, made the immediate decision to put all our classes online so for a few weeks now our, our classes and tutorials and seminars have been conducted through a, a really wonderful interface called collaborate Bit of buzz marketing there for Collaborate, and uh, and the transition's been generally pretty pretty easy. There's been a few technical hiccups to iron out, particularly for students who don't have uh, lots of bandwidth or uh, have well, have various sort of impediments, have don't have headphones or don't have microphones or whatever. Right. Uh, but we've got there, and we're we're I've got a class this afternoon. So and my my class is is a balanced role. So it's kind of 40% teaching, 20% admin and 40% research. So creative writing falls under the research umbrella. So mm -hmm. uh, four days, uh, two days a week, I'm still writing and working. But of course, it's spread out across the week. So my old writing routine used to, used to be that I would get up in the morning and start working and um, stop when I had done what I needed to do. And that's pretty much the same now, except uh, I've got a lot more emails to answer from students and various other meetings to be conducted on Zoom or Skype or Collaborate or however. But it's nice not to have to drive to the office. Yeah. <laughs> not that we have the traffic that LA has, but it's still, it's still you know, a slight chore. <laughs> poor, poor Sean. All that traffic. So... Um, all that traffic. Well, 20 years of working in my home office, you know, I've been completely spoiled. I yeah. actually have to wear proper clothes when I go to the office, you know. <laughs> a shock. <laughs> yes. When you write, so you've got your short fiction, your long fiction, your nonfiction. You've got then, breaking even further, you've got mm. your science fiction. You've got your, what, mystery. You've got fantasy. So how do you, how do you juggle all this? Uh, I, I'm middle grade and YA and adult. How do I juggle all this? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I guess the most important thing is that you should write what you write, um, uh, because if you're writing something you don't feel completely invested in, your your readers will be able to tell. So I kind of follow my 
instincts to a certain extent, but with with an eye with an eye to the market always. You know, I I, I still want to publish the books that I write, and I think right. it's important uh, that books books be read <laughs> for my my sense of uh, well-being. So I, I'm aware of what the market uh, is looking for, but it does come back to what I'm urged to write. So my last novel that came out last year, Impossible Music, is a it's a mainstream YA novel set in the present day, set in the real world, set, in fact, in Adelaide, my hometown. Uh, it's the first time I've ever written, every first time I've ever published a novel like that. Uh, and it's about a main character who goes uh, suddenly deaf. He's a heavy metal musician, so he has to kind of reassess his relationship with music. So that that's a, was a radical departure for me, but it's it's gone it's gone really well, and it's been picked picked up nominations for some major awards. My next book is a middle grade fantasy uh, about two kids who are trapped in a a house that might or might not be full of ghosts. So uh, I didn't plan to publish a book about people being trapped in a house in the middle of a global pandemic where people are trapped in their houses. It just happened to work out that way <laughs> because that was the book I really wanted to write and. And it was based on, uh, I was living in, in Dublin, Ireland for a year in 2018. And, and this was the book that that experience inspired. So uh, again, kind of following my heart. So the next couple of books that I, I'm working on will be similar sorts of things. I'll be writing what I feel most passionate about because cause at any moment, there, there's probably half a dozen books that I would really love to write at various stages of readiness. Uh, so it's not like I am ignoring the market. I'm just picking the one that seems like it might be right, that my editors might be interested in or my agent feels they can sell. So it's a, a constant juggling act of all these various various priorities that right. re- combine to result in the final decision. Okay, well that that makes sense. And that's uh I was I was interested how you do that and like what What's your inspiration? So it's basically because that's what you're inspired to write, and so you're you're going to write what you want to write. And if it's going to be YA, mm. adult fiction, nonfiction, it's just that's what you're writing. So you're not concerned mm. with being. I'm a bit of a gadfly. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not concerned with <laughs> with like like some people like Stephen King's known as a horror writer. You know, you've got certain writers that get they they are known as this, and you're known as none of that you're like you're a science fiction you're a fantasy you're i know you more as a ya author actually i mean that's what i've really enjoyed yeah. a lot you know then there's the nonfiction, sean so is that yeah does it complement do they complement each other just as, because it's a, it bridges over so that someone who sees you as a fantasy now discovers you as science fiction well i hope so i one of the the publishing traditions when you ask confronted with an author like this is, is to use pseudonyms to just like uh, Stephen King did with Richard Bachman. He created a pseudonym to write slightly different kinds of books and, uh, and then he got caught and JK Rowling did the same thing as well. She created her pseudonym to write crime novels. And I've always wanted to do that kind of thing, but my publishers won't let me for some reason. I keep saying maybe this one, I tried really hard with impossible music. I said, this one's completely different to anything else I've done before. This is my chance to, do a pseudonym and my agent and editors both said but we love this book why wouldn't you want people to know it was you <laughs> I went, all right i got give in so uh i think people just are used to me slapping around and doing whatever i like and uh, maybe that's that, that maybe that's the kind of author that i am the australian book review once described me as the king of chameleons because i i keep changing my colors keep changing my spots and and that's not a bad 
thing to be. I think it's not uh, bad at all. That's a great. Uh, it's great to call it's not, you like it's, that. It's a great. It's a great position to be in, too. It means that I don't necessarily have to worry about only writing horror or having to produce a horror novel every year. I can I can do YA realism one year and middle grade fantasy another year. And who knows what 2021 will bring. It might be an adult space opera. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, that, I know that's... it probably won't be that. I do love writing adult space opera. I, I would like to do more of that. The trouble is when you've done all these different genres, I... I would like to do all of them again. And there are still genres that I haven't done, like realist crime. I would love to do a crime novel set here in Adelaide or a mystery novel or something like that. But, um, you know, how do I fit it all in? Yeah. Well, I guess I'm still working that out. Well, you're still a young pup, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that was true. Don't forget, John, I, I, was, oh, I was in my 20s when I came across to LA in 1993. So that gives you an idea that I'm not that young anymore. <laughs> yeah, well... You still have a hearty <laughs> laugh, and we, we can still sell that image. So I have, I have uh, <laughs> somebody who, uh, who routinely listens to the podcast had a question. This is one of our um, listeners, Christopher Hankel, asked about how do you determine when a unique point of view character is, quote, a fresh, compelling idea, unquote, versus, quote, limiting the market by using a narrow demographic as POV? Mm. You know, that's a good question. I think, though, that a good character is a good character, no matter whether we've seen that kind of character before. Does that make sense? If if a character feels alive to the, the author, they will seem alive to the writer. And it doesn't matter if, uh, you know, there have been plenty of stories about detectives and police officers and private detectives, but crime is still such a burgeoning uh, genre because writers keep coming up with new ideas, new characters uh, based on that kind of role. And I, th- I think it's the same for any character. If you're if you're wanting to set a story and you're using a, a clearly stereotyped kind of point of view character, and you're not adding anything, adding anything new to that character, then yes, it'll be limiting, and yes, it'll feel. The author's job then, I think, is to find a way to freshen up that perspective and make it new. So now you see that in television too, with the rash of sort of Scandinavian or or British crime shows, say, or even American as well, well with uh, detectives that have problems that like, might be autistic, or they might have violent fugues, or they might have BOCDSD, or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It's a way of bringing something new to that to what could be a fairly stereotypical character in order to to spice up an already existing recipe. Does that make sense? Does that answer the question? I think so. I mean, he, I hope it does. Because he gave an, an example, a nomadic Eskimo, diabetic Quaker, or 1980s metalhead from deep Appalachia. You know, just, he says, I speculate most readers have lived <laughs> most or all of their lives in the city. Would they connect with these sorts of lead POVs? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I see what, what they're asking now. Yeah, okay. No, I think absolutely. Uh, write them freshly and vividly and uh, people will love that kind of thing. It, you know, I think there's a there's a thirst for new points of view and new experiences. And um, as long as you're writing them authentically and do your research and, and sometimes you have to be respectful for people who exist in those roles. So if you're writing from the point of view of saying Inuit character, you might actually want to speak to some Inuit people, that kind of thing. But I think, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're wanting to write a novel that needs to be set in New York for various reasons, then setting it from the point of view of 
of an Indigenous Australian will obviously be limiting in lots of ways, potentially, uh, if they're living in the outback, but uh, are supposed to be investigating crime in New York. But you wouldn't do that. I mean, no one in their right mind would do something like that. So I'd say go for it. Okay. Go for it and see what magical things eventuate. Good. Well, that makes sense. And that def- I'm not, I know he's going to appreciate that. So now on self-publishing versus a, uh, going through the, a publisher, what's your, what's your perspective on that? I've done both. Uh, and my personal perspective is that I keep the self-publishing stuff for, for sort of uh, things that are really important to me that, uh, that I really want to get out. And I think my hardcore fans will be interested in but uh, I don't think we'll have a, a wide market. So uh, the stuff that I think will find a market, I'd always rather go through a major publisher because I'm not a very good book designer uh, and I'm, I really love being edited by other people. And uh, in terms of marketing, uh, there are people who are better at it than me. So I'd rather go through a traditional publisher than pay for people to do that kind of thing myself. So, uh, and having grown up with trade publishing, it's it's something I feel very comfortable with. And and while they keep publishing me, I'll keep doing it. But that said, you know, some people are really great at self-promoting and marketing and and putting together a book package and um, they should totally go for it. I uh, And you never know, and maybe one day I'll move into that area just to see how it goes. You know, maybe the Trade publishers will all go out of business and uh, <laughs> or maybe yeah. not be interested in the gadfly like me. So I might try self-publishing and, um, oh, yeah, it could be a good experience. It'll be a bit hard on top of um, teaching, I think, to devote the time that it needs. I mean, self-publishing really is a full-time job. Uh, but that's another reason why I, I didn't go into self-publishing early was because I was I was really enjoying writing and I was writing two or three books a year. I didn't have time to do all the extra work that uh, self-publishing would have required. But I'd you're able writing books. Yeah, but you're also able to get um, an editor. I mean, you're able to get mm. an agent too, which made a big difference. Yeah, that really helped as well. That's and I think, right. And um, winning the contest gave you a, a definite leg up on that as a writer yeah. feature winner. Absolutely, that's right. I've had two. I've been blessed with two very good agents in my career so far. So, uh, so you had um, so two very good agents in your career so far. That's right. And yeah. with and with respect to uh, someone who's who's just starting out right now to get an agent versus if they're starting, like they got a great story, they've written it mm-hmm. and they want to shop it around. Do you have any particular, since um, you've gone through your curve down there in, in uh, Australia, mm-hmm. any particular recommendation on a, a suggested potential curve for them? I think it depends on, where they are to a certain extent. I mean, I really needed an agent in the US to sell my books in the US. Adelaide is such a long way away. Uh, unless you're, unless you've got the money and the time and the resources to travel regularly and the contacts to connect with editors, uh, much better to have an agent who's there on the ground in New York, in in London, uh, in other places. So that was something I definitely needed. I was able to sell books here in Australia. I'd sold a, I'd sold a, I'd sold a few books here. And uh, But I knew that if I was going to break out of Australia, I'd needed to have that agent on the ground. But if you're living in New York, if you're living in London, you might you might be okay with that one. So that's kind of where my advice generally goes. But okay. some people, you know, some people just don't like the cut and thrust of that side of the business very much. You've got to be really ruthless. <laughs> Having watched a few deals being negotiated, you know, BCC'd on emails, it's, uh, it's pretty high stakes sometimes. And... 
I'm not sure that I <laughs> would like to do that for every book, you know? Yeah. I've had incredible deals made because my agent said, that's just not good enough. Come back to me when you've got a proper offer. And, and I would have been happy with the original offer. <laughs> yeah. Know? So and the editor did come back with an even better offer and, offer and uh, you know, great. That's fantastic. That's what an agent is for. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. And they, they're also there to protect you from things legally that, that a new writer would not be aware of. There are all sorts of bad deals that can be signed by people starting out uh, unless they're uh, really meticulous on the legal side and aware of all sorts of tricks that can be played on them. Um, so I think it's good having somebody to look over your shoulder that way too. That makes good sense. And it's worth the percentage mm. you pay. Oh, absolutely. And the other, the other thing, the third thing uh, is if something goes wrong, if something goes wrong with your publisher, uh, it's fantastic to have somebody to ring up and be the bad guy <laughs> and uh, sort of cover you without you having to, be in that really uncomfortable position and i've really appreciated that down the years too because things always go wrong you know <laughs> yeah unfortunately there are things that um murphy does have residency <laughs> in a lot of places on this planet uh sure does it's yes. inevitable you know every relationship changes and and uh, for both writer and publisher it's a business so uh, and sometimes the business stars don't align between those two parties, and it's great to have somebody there to kind of help sort it out. Yeah. Now, back in 2003, you became a, a judge for the Writers of the Future contest. So I did. You did indeed. So exciting. Yeah, so <laughs> tell me about a little bit about, like, what's your, your take on the contest? We've talked a lot about various things here, but now as a judge for the Writers of the Future contest, I mean, it was a contest that was created by Elwin Hubbard in 83, and it's gone on, and you were like in the ninth year. But what value do you see of the contest? It continues to grow. We just finished another quarter, and even despite mm. what's happening, it was the highest ever on entries for both the uh, writers and for the uh, illustrators' contest. And we're up to thousands of entries a quarter now. I mean, it's, it's grown wow, considerably. Huge. It's very huge yeah. from entries from over 175 countries now that are coming in. So what, what's your take on, as a judge for the Writers of the Future contest, of, of its value to speculative fiction? It is up to 17,000 words. It's not novels. So mm. what do you, what's your take on, the, uh, on its value for the genre? Well, it's uh, well. What it brings to writers is all the things that it gave to me back in '93. That hasn't changed at all. In terms of its value to the genre, it's uh, an incredible sorting house for new talent. I mean, it, you know, I, I don't want to use this analogy, but I, I can't think of a better one at the moment. But it's a great way of sorting through the chaff to find the wheat. You know, those those uh, absolutely brilliant new writers who are just on the verge of popping. It's a great way of bringing them to the attention of editors and agents and general readers just before they break out into the into the wider world, uh, artists, artists as well as writers. You know, these are incredibly talented people of all ages at the beginning of their their amazing careers, and the and the writers of the future catches them just just at that perfect moment. <laughs> yeah, when they're when they're maybe not. Uh, you know, in terms of the industry, you know, they may not have signed up to anybody yet. So it's a great way for editors to catch people, uh, you know, just 
just when they're available. Or it's a great way to watch people becoming inspired and growing as artists. And I mean, some of the some of the winners, are, it's been they've been like their first stories. It's some of these stories are incredible. People write their first stories submitted in Wind Rise of the Future. You know, where to from there? I mean, that's the the, the fascinating question to watch being answered as their careers progress and uh, the the contest just captures them at that perfect moment. It's like watching, what's it like watching a, a shooting star or a, a firework just the fuse, just going on a firework, you know, that something beautiful and extraordinary is about to happen next. And when uh, the right of the future is there right at the beginning of it, nurturing and growing and finding and revealing and encouraging and, uh, and through the workshop, you know, mentoring and uh, creating connections to make sure that these these new talents don't uh, don't disappear, aren't discouraged, uh, don't feel like anybody's listening, etc. It's interesting because you said you were a finalist once, and the same thing happened with uh, Brandon Sanderson. He mm. had he had written several novels and submitted, and he was seriously considering throwing in the towel, and he got a a, um, a finalist certificate from Writers of the Future. And that was mm. just like, for him, it was, uh, you know, keep on going, you, you know, just persist, don't give up. And shortly thereafter, he mm. sold his first novel, and he's hardly looked back since then. Oh, so, that's right. Yeah. So the value, because now there's, a, because there's so many more people entering, and it's, um, we have a lot more of the, the honorable mentions and the final certificates that get sent out. Yes. So there's definite, I'd like you to, you know, maybe explain a little bit more, like, the value of getting one of those certificates. I mean, now people put that in their resumes and it, it, yeah. it, it's taken, it takes their name out of the slush pile too. But Oh yeah, that's right. Yes. It's a way of, uh, of uh, differentiating yourself from people who may not have the chops or the skills that you have. It's, uh, it's like being a member of SIFWA or having been published in uh, analog or it's, it's such a mark of professionalism and talent these days it's uh, so much harder to win <laughs> yeah. uh, anything right in the future now that the competition is so huge so it's it's such a mark of success to get uh, to get a nod uh, from yeah. the writers of the future yeah um I'm, abs- I'm not surprised at all that people are are, are using them as uh, signs of distinguishment or qualification and they should totally be encouraged by getting one of them. I mean, for me, I, I I really did get better over those those ten quarters that I entered, and I could see that through the the certificate and the prize. And I see that too in forums online where people, you know, they try and try, they get they get an honourable mention or a certificate, or uh, and and they go, yes, great, I'm going to keep going, I'm determined to win. You know, yeah, <laughs> that encouragement is. In, in an environment where you might send stories to your favourite magazines for years before selling anything, uh, you'd need that encouragement. You need that validation. Validation from from anywhere, <laughs> from no. your peers, from your judges. So. Yeah, yeah. And we also have the, uh, the Rise of the Future Forum where a lot of aspiring writers are involved. We have one of our recent winners. He's in the forum itself. He's getting 2,000 views a day coming to the wow. forum, looking at the, you know, some of the different posts that he has, because he's got his favorite essays from when he went to the workshop. Mm. But it's, it's, the whole thing is just continues to grow. Going back to when you came out here for the, uh, for the workshop, anything that stands in your mind from it, do you remember from way back when, when you were here? One of the, the key things that I remember really clearly, I mean, it was a long time ago, we're talking 27 years ago now, and my memory is not what it used to be. But I remember really clearly 
meeting Kevin J. Anderson and uh, a very young Kevin J. Anderson, <laughs> although he is older than me. I want to make that absolutely clear. <laughs> Kevin is older than me. <laughs> but he was, he was uh, you know, uh, he was already a successful author, but he was still an, a he was. I, I still have this image of him as being at the beginning of his, you know, stellar the stellar career that was to come. You know, June and everything was still ahead of him, and I remember him being full of energy and loving writing and loving what he was doing, uh, and making a living from it and making a very good living from it. And I remember thinking, I want to be just like him. You know, I want to, I want to be a novelist like Kevin J. Anderson, and and that was a really powerful moment for me. The other one of the other really powerful moments was. Uh, well, the workshop with Dave Wolverton was incredible. That was uh, a huge part of the experience. I, even though I was massively jet-lagged and kept falling asleep and missing classes, <laughs> I still <laughs> learned so much from Dave. Uh, he was a real inspiration. But I, one of the really powerful things was meeting other writers who were at the same level as me. I, coming from Adelaide and being a fairly shy young man, I hadn't really engaged with writing communities down here beyond a, 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 a writer's workshop that didn't really do anything for me. So when I, I remember I turned up at uh, Author Services in LA and there was this group of, oh, maybe there were 15 other people, I forget exactly how many people were there, and they were all as enthusiastic as me. They all loved writing. We all loved the same genres and styles of writing. We all had the same authors in common. We were all really thrilled to be winners, and I think there was one finalist. It was such a, a sense of of uh, joining a community, meeting meeting like-minded people, finding my people. Right. And that was immensely valuable to me. It helped me come out of my shell uh, locally and nationally and internationally as a as a public figure, I guess. Not not immediately, of course, as a as a role model or a leader in the field, but but just as a member of the community. And it was from that point on that I started going to conventions and joining committees and uh, all that sort of stuff. It was, it was. I felt very welcomed and embraced there, and not just by my winners, but by fellow winners, but by by the judges too, like Kevin. I remember having long conversations with Kevin back then. I was a nobody from the other side of the world and Kevin took the time to kind of talk to me and encourage me and was very friendly. And that, that you can't put a price on that kind of stuff. That's, that's unbelievably inspirational. And that's something that, yeah, a lot of the other winners talking about just totally shocked that their heroes were sitting down and talking to him like regular people. You know, to yes. totally feeling welcomed as a as a writer now. I still get a buzz, you know, when I come along to the award ceremony, and I'll, uh, particularly when I was coming back in two thousand and three. At, uh, you know, you'd be sitting there, and Anne McCaffrey would pull up next to you and have a chat, or yeah, at the ceremony, you'd, you'd be standing next to Larry Niven and having a quick chat, you know, and and as somebody who grew up reading both those amazing authors yeah it was incredible and then later on you look across and you'd see larry and ann talking to uh somebody as i was in 93 a winner who had been plucked out of nowhere to to be in this crowd and treating them as equals as well it's uh oh, it's fantastic really great yeah i remember one very special moment when we were in seattle you were there i think it was in seattle and you presented the award to cat sparks Ah, my dear friend Cat Sparks, that's right. <laughs> that was I, that was great because you were able to to fellow Australian, you know, as mm. uh, as a winner there. 
And hope mm, you'll be able to make right. it this year too, because we have two more Australians that won this year. Yeah, I'd love to. The trouble now is that I'm a I'm a teacher and I have to keep <laughs> regular teaching hours. But maybe now I have a question. Going back to when you came out here for the uh, for the workshop, anything that stands in I your remember, mind? I remember going to the library. I remember talking to a stranger on Hollywood Boulevard. Boulevard. Yeah, uh, still do that. Still do that. That's right. This guy I spoke to was a a punk with a green mohawk. <laughs> it's fantastic. He. Uh, he was. I was looking for a light. That was my excuse. I smoked back then. Terrible habit. I don't do that anymore. Uh, but I, I, I could see that he was smoking, so I asked him for a light, and we got to chatting about punk culture in LA, which I didn't know was a thing, but it turns out it was. So I had a great chat with him. <laughs> oh, I'll never forget that. Yeah, so. so you had your stranger and your trip to the library and your, your object. you remember what your object was that, that Dave or Kathy or whoever it was gave to you? No, I don't. Gee, I'm sorry. That's okay. I was too jet lagged, I think. Uh, I do remember the classes and I remember I remember not being able to finish my story because I was just too exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I still have the draft of it somewhere in my archives up in Queensland, I think. Um, I don't have it here at hand at the moment. But I. it's funny because I remember certain things uh, incredibly vividly because um, everything was novel. I'd never been to America before. It was my first trip to America. I think it was my first trip overseas on my own. So everything was incredibly new and fresh. So not just the workshop, but um, the food, the people, the accents, the sights, the sounds, the pollution, the cards, you know, everything was amazing, <laughs> amazing and inspiring. And I came back from LA and the first thing I did was write a a 23,000 word novella inspired by the traffic of LA. So, <laughs> so it was incredibly inspiring. And I think I wrote that in about five days. It was, I was on such an incredible high, creative high because of that trip. Wow. That's, that's great. So any particular advice you've got for the aspiring writer? Uh, well, you see, now that's a good question, and uh, what I suspect, what I what I advise uh, an aspiring writer to do is go to Google and uh, put in Sean Williams and Ten and a Half Commandments, and you'll get an essay I uh, published uh, in January in the Conversation, which is my condensed a condensed um, advice for writers of all stripes, new writers, old, old writers, middling writers, uh, and this writer, this advice will work all the time. It doesn't need to be qualified. So I mentioned before that I used to be in a writing writers group, uh, and I did, and that can be really helpful for some people. But for me, it was not especially helpful. So that's, that's not advice that I would give to a new writer because sometimes it doesn't work, whereas things like you know, read a lot and read widely is something that I would tell every writer. Um, work hard, write, listen to people, uh, that kind of thing are, are, is on the on the Ten and a Half Commandments. Well, that's great then. So where is that again? It's uh, it's on The Conversation, uh, which is a website down here that publishes lots of articles for um, uh, written by academics uh -huh. uh, for a general, a general audience. So uh, I've written several articles for them now, and they've uh, uh, had all sorts of uh, incredible readerships and uh, it's good. It's great opportunity. This is part of the nonfiction stuff that I've been writing uh, since I've been a teacher. It's given me a great chance and a great opportunity and a great outlet to uh, to think about and kind of spread some of the things I've learned down the years to a wider audience. 
I guess, and that's one of them. The first, the first article I had in the conversation was about the five story senses for writing for children, like sense of wonder, sense of humor. It's uh, given me a great way to think about writing. Oh, that's great. That's great. And the other piece of advice I'd give to a new, new writer is, of course, to keep submitting to writers of the future. You know, if you qualify, uh, you should totally submit. Why aren't you submitting if you're not? You know, it's such an incredible, amazing opportunity. Why wouldn't you want to be part of it? Sure. Now, just for anybody that doesn't know, when this was originally created by Aaron uh, Hubbard back in the early 80s, some of the requirements were you couldn't have been a professional author. It's blind judging so that the judges only see the story in a number. And right. there's no age, there's no sex, there's no ethnic, there's no requirements other than the fact it's a story. And it has to be formatted properly, obviously. And yes, um, that's right. <laughs> you can't have been professionally published. And so it's open that's to anybody right. and there's no entry fee. So just if you can right. just talk about that a little bit, why that is so important as a uh, facet for any contest, but especially for this contest for an aspiring writer. Well, it's the ultimate leveling contest, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, to win a Nebula Award, say, you have to be published in a magazine and you have to have been read by its readership and there, uh, there are all sorts of uh, barriers to entry to getting uh, an award like that. Whereas Writers of the Future, it's, uh, it's available to any writer on the planet. It's available especially to new writers. So you're not competing with Larry Niven or me or Kevin J. Anderson or Nina Kariki Hoffman or any number of greats. It's a, it's a great way to compete only with other new writers. There's, you don't have to pay to enter. So if you are coming from a country that's not as affluent as, say, America or Australia, there's no barrier to entry there. You can just, if you can afford to print your manuscript and put a stamp on the envelope, you can enter and have an equal chance of winning equal to any other person on the planet, no matter where they come from. And now we have uh, it. It's also for, we have online entry. So now you can just go oh. straight online to writersthefuture.com, enter contest, enter writer contest, and just upload it. Same thing with the Illustrator. You can do everything online, yep. so it won't even cost you a penny to mail. There you go. See, I'm showing my age again, John. <laughs> Everything's changed. You don't <laughs> even have to put a stamp on it, which is which is great, you know. Uh, what do they think of next? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and the, and the benefits are so enormous. You know, this is, uh, you know, the prize money, the workshop, the the publication in what is it, the largest anthology, science fiction anthology in the world, the best selling science best fiction selling, anthology. Best selling, yes, yes. Uh, you know, it's just such an extraordinary opportunity to leapfrog your career. Uh, yeah, it doesn't cost you anything to enter. All it costs you is work and imagination. That's right, and. Uh, uh, anybody can win. Anybody can win. The year that uh, my story won, you'll remember this, John. The the uh, the illustrator that took the gold prize was from Russia, mm -hmm. uh, an amazing young young artist who illustrated my story. I'll never forget him. It was after the war came down, but things were, you know, it wasn't Russia was wasn't a very open uh, country, and yet this artist came from, you know, the Eastern Bloc to America. Uh, to receive his prize. Just incredible. The Writers of the Future is full of so many stories like that. People from, what did you say? We've got winners from Iran, a winner from Iran this year? This year in Turkey and two from and Australia. Turkey. Yeah. Extraordinary. You know, it's it's a, a, a high, not just a high quality award, but a truly international award. Yeah, it's a, um, I mean, it's, it's really good. It really validates. And right now with 
it's, it's been an issue, ongoing issue, which maybe you've experienced too with budget cuts in education for arts. If this is an outlet that aspiring artists and with, you know, with people like yourself around to spread the word that it's still an, an avenue for people to just to still try and, and make it go mm. with the arts. That's I, right. I tell my students about it. I encourage them to enter, you know, while they're doing assignments for me. Uh, you know, they're writing good stories. I figure, why not submit them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Get them no. in. And it's, I, know, I know it's an extra deadline, but uh, with me, you'll just pass or fail. With Writers of the Future, you, you have the chance of all this great stuff happening to you. Yeah, and the way you become a writer is by writing. So this, the deadlines give you that, that necessity, which you talked mm. about too. You had 10 entries, so you just keep on doing and doing and doing. And each time you get better because you're writing. The way you learn to write per your, also per your successful tips is a writer writes. Writer writes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds easy, doesn't it, John? <laughs> Indeed it does. <laughs> trust me. Trust me. That's right. <laughs> well, all right. Well, thank you very much, Sean. This has been great having a chance to talk with you. And I really do hope we're able to work out getting you to come out here in, in August for the uh, awards event. But either way, we've got you now mm. on a podcast so people can hear you and enjoy what you have to say. Oh, I hope they like it. And uh, it's been always nice talking to you, John. <laughs> always good. Yeah, I, I so enjoy our friendship. And to everybody else listening, thank you. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. And once again, Sean, thank you very much. My pleasure, John. Thank you. <laughs> 